Hello, happy 2021, and welcome to the 60th episode of BZ Listening. Yeah, I've always wanted to do that. That sounds awesome. Well, it doesn't sound like anything right now because I'm in a quiet room recording this, but when I add them in, that's going to sound great. Uh, hello, I am your host, BZ Douglas, uh, an independent journalist based in Cleveland, Ohio, and going to be easing into the year here and uh, taking another personal day with the show, which is where I explore an issue that hits close to home for me. The first time I did this, it was about transgender issues as my sister was transitioning, as my sister was transitioning. <laughs> this time, it, we're going to be focusing on attention deficit disorder, which I was diagnosed with when I was about nine years old. And just looking at the trajectory of my life since high school, I went to college for acting. I dropped out, took a full-time job coding HTML. I pivoted to design and then motion design and then development, like full-time programming. And now I, I freelance doing all those things to pay the bills as I shift over and learn how to do the journalism and build up a base of, of Patreon and, and Substack supporters. <clears throat> anyway, my, so my guest today to talk about this is Dr. Joel Schwartz, uh, actually a friend of mine and more importantly, a clinical psychologist who specializes in working with well, adults who have childhood trauma, but also neurologically diverse children and adults. And he, and he is a strong proponent of the neurological diversity paradigm. So I, you know, like, as you can tell, I've got a, a lot I could say about this episode that I was going to try and cram all into this introduction, but I've decided to save it for uh, the premiere of a new weekly live stream I'm producing with my wife, and we're calling it Hot Cakes and Takes. Uh, we're just going to be making breakfast every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, recapping the week in politics, what's going on with us. Uh, chatting with guests, maybe, you know, singing a song or two. I don't know. We'll see how ambitious things get. But for now, I just really wanted to commit to, you know, producing a, a regular live stream in 2021. Just yet another endeavor to add, add to the growing list. And more than that, I've really been wanting Deb to be a bigger part of the show. So uh, I, I'm really excited to have you know her takes get out there more because honestly I like them a lot more than a lot of professional take havers and she generally likes my takes but I I'm better at giving takes when I'm having a conversation with someone and especially when that someone is someone like her who will you know call bullshit if I throw out a half-baked take so I promise that is, this is the last time I will say take during the intro of this show. Uh, anyway, so that is this Saturday. Check the episode description for more details 
but today you came here to hear about my conversation with Dr. Schwartz, I assume, because that's the title of the episode. So uh, in the show notes, you will find links to some uh, really great articles he has written about ADD and other subjects. Uh, we reference them in the interview. And uh, to his California-based practice, Total Spectrum Counseling, where he works alongside his wife, Brittany, a licensed clinical social worker. And full disclosure, before we get into the interview, just so you know, I did attend Joel and Brittany's wedding where I, I danced like a reckless idiot after they handed out purple scarves and started blasting Gogol Bordello. Just so you know. Thank you for unknowingly agreeing to give me the Christmas present of a, a free open source therapy session. <laughs> you'll get a surprise bill after the new year <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> yeah um i actually it's funny i so i was diagnosed with adhd in i think it was the fourth grade or going into the fourth grade i was getting good marks but um the teachers wanted to hold me back because of my behavior they are, I remember my most vivid memory of being being shamed for my behavior in class was like I was sitting in the back somewhere and I had these glasses with like kind of like yours with the little hole between the lenses and I like jammed a pencil in it and I was just like aiming it at things around the room entertaining myself and she's like Brian would you like to stand up and show everybody what you're doing and <laughs> that's terrible yeah and then, so this was in, so what, I'd have been, this was, I would say around like mid 80s, 85, 86, this happened. And I went on, yeah, it was Ritalin at the time. And I, my memory of, of treatment was really just like, I'd get my pills. <laughs> I don't remember talking to anyone about anything. Um, I don't remember what the process of diagnosis was. I do know that ADD was kind of a new thing on the scene as a term. Um, and so then I was on Ritalin up until like, I want to say it, it pretty steady until about high school. And I had a problem with it in that, and the way I've come to describe the experience of Ritalin and, and Adderall now is like, it's kind of like just locked my head in a vice and I was all about the task thing that was in front of me, but I, I just felt like a lot of who I was evaporated or just got shunted to the side mm -hmm. when I was on medication. And then, so I went off it in high school, having frustration with that. And then in or after college, I was kind of struggling with like, keeping uh, and I had my first job I was struggling kind of keeping focused at work I don't I the job was really exciting and, and it was a good environment for me um, so I went back to a psychologist I got re-diagnosed and I was on Adderall and the interesting thing is that it when I in my mid-20s finally like had a, a friend who just could get pot whenever I wanted it. Cause prior to that, I, I had maybe smoked pot like one, like first when I was like in my t like 21 ish or something like that. And then every now and then it'd be around and like, Oh cool. This is fun. 
but I never knew how to like, hey, how do I get a guy to, <laughs> but once I, I just like could, I had access to, to cannabis, it wasn't conscious, but I was just like done with Adderall. And if Adderall was like a vice around my head, um, cannabis seemed like it was this nice arm that went around my shoulder. I'm like, yeah, what do you want to look at? Let's look at that. Yeah, all right. <laughs> and and it, it sort of heightened who, more who I felt I was, the part of me that was getting shunted aside, so to speak. So um, I just wanted to kind of give you a preface of like what my experience with ADD diagnosis was. And I wanted to know how do you define ADHD and, and how does your dif definition differ from others in your field? Ooh, that's a good question. I have to bat. Uh, th thanks for sharing your story. I'm, I'm really curious about actually, maybe for another time, hearing about what exactly the weed does um, because I've heard such varied stories about um, what it does. And for some people, uh, weed can actually exacerbate it and make it worse. And some people have like panic attacks on CBD when they're having, when they are ADHD. So it's, it's, I mean, stimulants don't work for everybody either. Um, so it's, the medicine question is always interesting for me. Of what exactly is going on with these medications and how does it interact with ADHD? That's off topic. Your question was about um, how do I define ADHD? Well, first, I think I should uh, declare my own status as an ADHDer. Um, there, are, there are parallels to your story that I can get into later if you'd like. Um, but the the main difference between the way I conceptualize ADHD in the way most people do is that I don't necessarily base it on behavior. So the way ADHD is uh, defined in the diagnostic manual is essentially the things about us that neurotypical find inconvenient. I, I can get behind that definition, <laughs> that shorthand. And also, it's it's not necessarily um, specific to ADHD folks. You know, one one of the diagnostic questions we often get is: Is this person have PTSD, or or do they have autism, or do they have ADHD? Because some of the behaviors associated with these conditions um, overlap, and really, what you're seeing is a lot of difficulty with regulating emotional experiences and tamping them down so that you can focus. Um, and uh, that, my guess is that's probably what the weed is doing. This is probably like calming down the reactivity in your body just enough for you to be able to, to I think it does. It's, zero it, in on it things. slows my brain down. And, yeah. I'm not, and I'm definitely still on a stimulant kick as far as like, you know, coffee and well, as I've gotten older and coffee's a bit more abrasive, like I can't drink coffee all day like I used to, but so I've switched yeah. to black tea, but caffeine is still a big part of my life. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and so I think what the diagnostic criteria misses is what it means internally to be somebody with ADHD. And there are common experiences that we have which aren't part of the diagnostic criteria. 
uh, we tend to have sensory differences. Um, you know, a lot of us have stories of having to cut out labels from our shirts because it was the scratchiness was too distracting. Um, you know, even now, if I get touched in a way that's too soft, it bugs the hell out of me. And I can't say, and I have to like, almost like grip my arms, give myself a big squeeze because the soft touch is just like, ah, it's like nail. It's the, the touch equivalent of nails on the chalkboard. Mm. Um, there are certain, um, at least for me being musically oriented, if I, if there's a song that has too much hi-hat and it's tinny and recorded bad, it's, it's again, nails on the chalkboard for me. Um, and so there, there are these sensory differences and preferences for movement that I think are a big part of being uh, ADHD. Uh, a big thing coming out of the research role right now is this uh, idea called time blindness, which is uh, it, uh, we're blind to the passage of time. We're uh, blind to the experience of time like normal, quote unquote, normal people are. Um, and we also have difficulty kind of grounding ourselves in time and space, uh, which is kind of accounts for a lot of the movement is we're like almost unconsciously trying to to ground ourselves in our bodies in space. And without that, um, there's this kind of like jittery feeling that we can get. Um, so uh, and, and also the the not being the the grounding oneself in time. Um, you know, I, I'll talk to friends who will say things like, oh, yeah, do you remember in fourth grade when, you know, this, this and this happened? And I'd be like, kind of. I, I remember this person. I remember the feeling. I, I don't remember. How do you know that it was in fourth grade? And they're just like, I don't know. It's just I know it was in fourth grade. Yeah. And I have to think back and be like, OK, oh, yeah, like I can see in the memory like it was in elementary school. I can kind of see that my age was this. And I remember it was close to that one field trip, which I know we had in fourth grade. So that's how I know it's in fourth grade. I have to like come up tied with to an, ex an experience. It's, it's tied to the, to the, to the context, which I have factual knowledge about. It's not an experience of myself in a kind of episodic, you know, linear form. Mm. Like I'm, I, I find it very hard to, give my life story in a narrative linear structure. I can give you a lot of great stories about things that have happened to me, um, but unless I'm really thinking about the contextual cues, I can't tell you exactly when or what the order was, um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, let's see, what are some other essential? Oh, the other, another really common experience in ADHD is uh, this thing called rejection sensitive dysphoria. Uh, which is uh, this feeling of when you have failed somebody or failed your own expectations that feels like a knife twisting in your chest. And not every ADHD person feels this way, but probably the majority have this experience of, of when they feel they failed something or they feel they're being rejected for somebody, the emotional turmoil of that is just extreme and it leads to a lot of compensatory behaviors that often make the social situation worse 
than it uh, would have been otherwise. Um, and oftentimes, the more that I'm doing therapy with uh, ADHD folks, the more I find uh, that rejection sensitive dysphoria is probably responsible for for more of the dysfunction in our lives than anything else. That and people having really unrealistic and crappy expectations and just being judgmental and ableist. Now, I mean, what prompted me, I, I had talked to you a while back about wanting to have you on to talk about this. Um, I forget what initially prompted it a while back, and then you sent me this fantastic article you wrote that just kind of cataloged how your brain was working in traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then what reminded me to get this going again was a friend of mine had this sort of just bearing herself on Facebook about dealing with ADD. And there was so much in what she wrote that just made me feel, you know, I, I felt, I guess the term is seen. Um, yeah. and, 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 yeah. and I felt so much solidarity with, with what she was struggling with. And her post just started out like, Here's some here are the things I've done since the pandemic started, you know, all these artistic endeavors and activities and and jobs and things like that. And then she talks about how if it's not happening to her, though, right now, all of a sudden it's all in the distant past. And, 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 and it feels like she's a 30 something high school quarterback reliving glory days, even though it was like last year. And definitely I really identified with she talked about being a sort of a jack of all trades and mm-hmm, being surrounded by people who have narrowed themselves into like, and, and, and this is, I totally identify with this on, on the level of music. Cause I, you know, came to playing music really late in life around like, you know, my thirties is when I was first going to open mics and writing songs and starting to perform surrounded by people who, were in their 20s and already had been working it for like a decade or or were you know old my age and had 20 years of experience and like music is their thing and i'm constantly walking around with imposter syndrome and that's it's not just music it's you know in my field of web development i you know look at people who were web developers and that's what they were all about is like i'm learning how to code this one thing and they're really good at it and i just can't picture myself being all in on one thing mm-hmm. like that um yeah. so yeah. and i what you were talking about with um disappointing yourselves or feeling rejection from others yeah i'm i'll like cast judgment upon myself from that i have perceived from other people that i have no tangible reason to believe right you know i'll think about like this musician i've met a couple of times and we're friendly but i and like in my head i'm just like i bet they think i like you know i'm a joke because i call myself a musician and they're 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 they've recorded things and they're playing paying gigs and they're like that guy yeah no it's so true and and you know i even though i have a very successful practice i i you know, got my license, I got my doctorate in psychology. I successfully run a 2000 plus Facebook group where people call on me and consult with me and I teach classes. If 
I don't hear from a client who I thought we're doing really good work with in two weeks. I'm like, oh, it's because I did something stupid. I'd said something this, I did this. I'm the worst psychologist ever. And 99% and of the time it's like, oh, I was sick. Sorry, I didn't get back to you or my dog died or, you know, that, that kind of thing. And, you know, yeah, every once in a while, I, I said something stupid. I can admit to that. <laughs> we all do. But it's so uh, rare. And, and, you know, compared to other colleagues, it's, it's normative. And so, you know, but I, I can always, you know, find a reason why I did something wrong. You know, I, I, I'm the reason why things are, are happening. And, and even after a ton of therapy and a ton of experiences, it's gotten certainly better over the years. Um, but, you know, the, it just takes that one thing to knock me off of my feet and then I'll, I'll, I'll bounce back. And I, and I think just being able to, to say to myself, okay, that's the rejection sensitive dysphoria. You don't have to react. Just wait for it to go away. That's a, that's been a big part of it also. Mm -hmm. And um, so this was such a hard uh, interview to prepare for in terms of, you know, I don't think I, I've, I've really had a guest on with a, a topic that hits so close to home for me. Um, yeah. And so there was just, I was like all week I had questions racing into my brain, but I was nowhere near where to write them down. And then when I finally had time to sit down and write them, I'm like, where was that really good one I had? So um, I, I also just was like, you know what? I have to allow myself and trust myself to be uh, organic and, and, and rely on my impulsivity and it'll come back in, in the moment. Um, but I did want to, I wanted to go back a little bit, um, and this is a question I have as it relates to, you know, myself as a parent, um, when it comes to children, what distinguishes ADHD from just the run of the mill hyperactivity and impulsivity that's just baked into kids being kids? Mm -hmm. Well, again, a lot of it is defined by the DSM, I hate that book, as, you know, it's kind of the behavioral extremes of these things. But, you know, when you look at it, it's, are they completely present focused? Are they able to plan, you know, for the future? Are they able to, to say, oh, I want to do this thing, and these are the 20 steps that I have to do to do it. That, that is the ability to picture oneself in time and space and project to the future and make a plan. And we can't do that. Uh, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much practice, and, and this is why a lot of, I think, therapy fails with ADHD people, because it's all about like trying to develop these skills that are really, it's like trying to develop sight in a blinded person, is they're just blind. They're not going to get sight. You have to give them a cane or a seeing eye dog or or... You have to, you know, give them something that they don't have. You can't develop it. And, you know, I don't want to get too de defeatist on that because people can develop compensatory mechanisms on their own as they grow. I, I didn't find that defeatist at all, you know, to yeah. a certain degree is to just feel like, oh, okay. So it's like, I, you know, because you have that, like, what can I do to fix myself? Or if you see it manifesting in your, like, what can I do to correct, you know, my kids so that they're approaching the world the right way. And, and if you're thinking that way and, and what you're running up against is what you're saying, then you're just setting yourself up for failure. Exactly. Exactly. One of the things that I, I tell the parents all the time is, is, you know, what if your kid 
had didn't have use of their legs and you needed to get them upstairs and you're just sitting there saying there's the stairs why can't you get up the stairs what's wrong with you can't you get up the stairs i've told you how to use your legs millions of times why can't you do it and that's what parents and teachers and even therapists do and it's like dude just pick the kid up and take him up the stairs <laughs> it's so much it's so much easier right yeah and and there's nothing wrong with having somebody who's going to need that help in life and that, that kind of brings us to um a couple of other areas that that are different in the way i do things so i practice from the standpoint of and through this movement called neurodiversity and the neurodiversity movement sees things like autism adhd even things like ocd even some psychotic ex uh, symptoms as naturally occurring variations of human diversity that developed for a reason. And just like there is a diversity of all sorts of human morphology, there is diversity of brains. And, you know, when you have somebody like you and I who are blue eyed, you don't force them to be brown eyed because brown eyed is the more normal way of being human we just say oh that person has has you know blue eyes you know that means they probably have fairer skin as well and might get more sunburn but my god are those be beautiful blue eyes <laughs> and we kind of look at at adhd the same way is is yeah there are some things that adhd people can't do there are some things that non-ADHD people can't do that ADHD people can do. I don't know about you, but being able to pivot during this uh, uh, pandemic has led to a lot of success. And a lot of people who um, were forced to work under, you know, some big boss or corporation and sit in a desk and do it, you know, the way they're supposed to, once they're kind of free to do it their own way, are like, wow, I'm more productive than I've ever been. Whereas all my neurotypical friends are like, I, this is hell, I can't do it. And, and you're know, not to say that, that there are those of us ADHD who are struck, who you know, aren't struggling. Of course there are. Um, but I'm finding a lot of uh, people who are autistic and ADHD now are having successes because they can do it their own way and they don't have to cave to other people's expectations and their way of being creative and thinking outside of the box has suddenly become worthwhile. And suddenly become needed instead of, you know, an instead of an impediment because we're questioning the authority and coming up with better ideas and nobody wants to hear it. Yeah, well, I think I think early on, what I found, you know, what I found to navigate the world with ADHD wasn't, you know, finding a a therapist to give me lots of behavioral advice. I probably would have benefited from that. Um, and I, I was not enthusiastic about the pharmacological, you know, solution that was given to me. But I've definitely, you know, looking back can see I've thrived once I recontextualized myself and the mm -hmm. most um, and finding the right modalities for myself, the right ways of doing things. And, and the most, you know, traumatic period of my life in terms of dealing with ADHD was when I was in school and there's like, this is how you're supposed to learn. And these, you know, this is what homework is. And I would always, you know, I would learn enough to ace a test just to like, okay, this will satisfy 
I can show you, I know what you want me to know, but I hated doing homework. It felt like a waste of time because I was proving that I knew something I knew. And I, and I used and to all think- all the studies show homework is a waste of time. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I adopted that like, oh, I guess I'm a, I'm a, I'm a C student. I'm a 2.5. I'm an average intelligence person. But then once I was out of school, and I was just free to pursue whatever I was interested in, I couldn't stop consuming knowledge, you know, whether it was getting introduced to certain authors that you'd never read in school or um, just the approaching, like learning about history and then getting into the real shit. Um, then I was a lot more, you know, I, I, you know, I call ADD, you know, it's like hungry brain or maybe you've said that mm -hmm. or it's, it's attention surplus enhancement. It's like I want to pay attention to everything. Right. Um, but the biggest thing that's that's helped me is just realizing like, well, that's just the wrong context for me and I need to not be in that. And it's funny what you said about um, how the pandemic has, you know, released some people and in, in finding that, you know, way they can work better, you know, now that they can work from home and they have more control over how they work. I was luckily in a position where like I had a job that enabled me to do that as far as, um, you know, there weren't a lot of arbitrary bullshit I had to deal with. And I could, as long as I did the work, like here, it's done. My boss didn't care if I was working from home or this or that. But at the same time, um, over the years would ground me down about the job because initially what you know web development and design was compelling to me is that i it was fun to figure shit out um but it wasn't over over time i stopped being you know satiated by that and and really got ground up to the fact that i was always applying these skills towards helping major corporations and all the worst banks or well you know banks um, and and so it was always kind of demoralizing what i was applying that to and but it was a job and so i i would also thrive in like oh you know the scotty sort of equation from star trek where they'd come to me and be like hey we need this thing done and I'd look at it and be like, oh, um, that'll take me, I don't know, maybe about eight hours. Like, wow, that's super fast. And I know I can get it done in two. Mm -hmm. And then I can spend the other six at my desk reading things <laughs> I want to read or watching things or doing anything that I want to. Right. And I'm in a situation, what's been difficult for me, and this was one of my questions I, I was leading into, was... Um, like how ADHD manifestations differ in occupational situations versus because I feel like I'm stuck with my nine to five coping ways when I was in the job I didn't like mm -hmm. there's a that's you know there's a residual like I can't kind of let go of that now that I'm in an entrepreneurial state where I get to dictate which web development projects I work on and and then you know pursuing journalism um I still have that like I'm avoiding work but I love the work now yeah and I don't know if that's just baked into the ADD brain or if I'm having to break out of my patterns that developed over just coping with jobs I wasn't enthusiastic about I think there there are a couple of things going on there. So the first is another internal experience for ADHDers is we do have a need for novelty. Um, 
they they've actually so so they can do studies where they look at your physiological response based on the the uh, they basically put electrodes on your skin and measure like the, your physiological response. And what they find is that ADHDers um, and and remind me to 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 get back to why I use the word ADHDer because I think that's an important point as well. Um, but we react strongly to new stimuli. And then as that stimuli is repeated, we habituate to it. Habituation is like when you put your hand, when you go in the hot tub and you're eventually like, oh, it's so hot. And then you get used to it. So the novelty for, wears off. Right. The novelty wears off really, really fast. Whereas neurotypical people, um, it doesn't. So they might find that same job rewarding consistently, where even if we got that buzz when we started, unless we're finding ways to make it novel, we're going to get bored with it. And that's going to happen. And the, the other part you were talking about is, you know, if you're doing this job for something that you feel is morally questionable, uh, whereas neurotypical people can kind of ignore that sensation of discomfort that is created by that, we cannot, it just grows. And that infects the work and it infects our motivation. And we have a difficult time pushing down that emotion um, because in general, we feel our emotions very strongly and they kind of have to play their course. We can't just tell them to shut up. Um, whereas I think neurotypical people are much better at that, at a, you know turning down the various knobs in their brain, whereas we just can't. It's like everything is gonna be loud. <laughs> so why, AD, why ADHDer? Because uh, if we approach ADHD from the from the paradigm that it's something wrong, it's a broken brain, it's a pathology, then uh, we use it with what's called person-first language. You're a person with ADHD, like you're a person with cancer or a person with uh, you know, schizophrenia. But if we accept that this is inherently part of who we are, and it's a beautiful part of who we are, and most of the problems with it have more to do with the world wasn't built by us. It was built by neurotypical people who don't get it. And it's our interactions with that world that's the problem. Then it becomes right along other various identity politics, like being somebody who's gay or Jewish or black. You're not a person with blackness or a person with you know, gayness. You're a gay person or a Jewish person or a black person. And so saying, you know, I'm an ADHDer is making it part of my identity and owning that this is as important to who I am in the world as any other identity. It reminds me a bit of um, when I was learning more about transgender um, as my sister transitioned and um, was pointed out that like, oh, you don't say someone is transgendered. They're a transgender right. person. Right. Um, and, and I'm curious about like that term neurotypical like or you know it was built by there's there's neurotypical or is there neurodominance of a certain type you know like or is there a typical that that's what i i'm curious about is like 
or do we all just is there just this gradation we're discovering of like these are there's no typical there's this whole rainbow of the ways brains work and every brain is unique but then there's like you know a spectrum that they'll fall into of that, that there's commonalities and then there's niches that are appropriate for people mm -hmm. that think a certain way so you you brought up serendipitously uh you know the, being trans and even though gender is completely socially constructed and really all of us are going to embody all aspects of gender at one time there is an experience of being cisgender in society and there's an experience of being trans in society and that's it's the same way where even though there might be variation in brains and you know strengths and weaknesses there is a experience of being in the norm in the way your brain works and that you're going to socialize much like everybody else you're going to express yourself much like everybody else you're going to be able to go into that office meeting and talk about the weather and sports and you know your kids and enjoy it whereas the people who aren't who are you know neuroatypical are not going to fit into that mold and are going to feel alienated and are going to feel um you know discriminated against and won't even know why yeah that may i mean that makes sense i've just been thinking about that more and more about how how people find their niches based on you know how their brains work and and how much too you know yet like you said our society is built by quote neurotypical and but i i would almost challenge that because i lately i've just been wondering like have you know people who are are you know have the people who fall into clinical narcissism and 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 sociopathy carved out the niche of political power for themselves <laughs> and we're all living underneath this sure sure yeah because that that you know i just thought you know as, as an anarchist you know i think a lot about power and authority and uh -huh. and and the uh, the notion of seeking it out and wielding it and and it it i can't it's hard for me to understand the thinking of some of these people who are in power and seek power in the way that they do it and well, we're all kind of trapped in this paradigm and i wonder if it's been there you know they've been naturally selecting themselves and setting up a, a the most powerful niche there could be for what their brains desire which is yes and in order to sustain power structures like that you have to get consent of the governed in a certain way yes you can you can suppress people to a certain extent, but you're, you're going to reach a time where revolution is going to happen. And the main strength and weakness of neurotypical people is, is having very strong social bonds and social identities based on maintaining the, uh, the status quo. And that's why most of the governs, even if they feel bad or question it, they're going to ignore it and they're going to just go about their lives where uh, I bet you that among revolutionaries, you're going to find almost 
uh, ubiquitously are going to be ADHD and autistic people because we can't handle that bullshit. We can't just quiet the parts of our brain that are going, that's fucking unjust. What is wrong with you? We can't let that part just go and go about our lives. It eats at us. Neurotypical people can. And it helps them cope with things really well, but it also maintains the status quo. And, you know, probably about 85% of people in the world are neurotypical like that. Yeah. And so it, it takes, you know, the, the outliers like us to, to, you know, really create change. And, and I can't be the only ADHD who has looked at other people's ability to let things go and just enjoy their, you know, and, and, and be like, I wish I could not care sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just going to barbecues and I'm having a wonderful weekends with my family. And that thing over there is sad, but, you know, you can't fix everything. And, and... right. <laughs> no need to get upset about it. Um, I want to get back to one thing you were talking about, how or I was curious uh, about how common um, misdiagnosis with ADHD is, um, uh, or vice versa. You know, someone's diagnosed as being one thing, but it turns out they're ADHD, or they're diagnosed as ADHD, but it, it, there's something else. As you know, I'm asking almost as someone who, like, I know I can't tell you how I was evaluated and told I was ADHD. At, third grade um but i just carried it with me and i've never gone to therapy to ever really other than like you know when i wanted to get re-diagnosed to to mm -hmm. get medicated mm -hmm. again um i've never really challenged that diagnosis or looked closer at other things um just because you know i'll have and i you know spell like sometimes i'm like well do i have the the bipolar or, um tendencies where it's like i'll notice like i'm just like there's weeks go by and I'm just like, I don't want to do anything. And I'm completely down on myself. And then boom, I'm like, yeah, I, life is great. I'm getting it all done and I'm going to do more. That's, that's a common ADHD experience. <laughs> but as for misdiagnosis, yeah. Um, you know, again, it goes back to the difficulty of that all the diagnosticians are basing it on overt behavior. And unless you understand what's going on on the inside and why the behavior is happening, you can't be accurate. So, you know, maybe they're accurately labeling the behavior, you know, they're, they're seeing this behavior maps onto the DSM and therefore it's ADHD and that's probably accurate. But then the person grows up and you find out it's bipolar or trauma um, and it's not ADHD. Um, and then the opposite also happens where I'll, I'll, you know, work with adults who maybe they had traumatic childhoods or they've, you know, been through traumatic times. They've been, you know, to every therapist under the sun and they've been, you know, through the trauma treatments and tried all these different depression meds. And I'll talk to them for a couple hours and I'll be like, all these things that you're trying to change about yourself, you can't, you know, th this is what this, I think you're ADHD. And if you're ADHD, you've been in therapy for 20 years trying to you know, change this thing about yourself that really we have to just kind of accept and love and realize it's part of the way you get things done and it's okay. Now, is there, is there any movement 
to reclassify it because if there's one thing that disturbs me, it's agreeing with everything you're saying and coming to recognize and like I have to find the right ways for myself and recognize um, how I work and not hate myself for it. Um, but I can't get over like, you know, my resentment of the fact that the word disorder is a part of that. Yeah. And, you know, and also touching on, you know, I'm sure you work with um, Asperger's patients. And that's, you know, that was, I used to do stand up, and one of my bits was about, like, I hated that they, you know, these people are, you know, I've heard it described as social dyslexia. And I'm like, oh, that, that tells me a bit what it is. Yeah. And, and if, when kids, when you're young and you hear about Asperger's, you immediately laugh. And they're like, oh, Asperger's. And it's like, it's not about you, Johan Asperger's. I'm glad you identified this, but we need specific language to call it that's accurate and, and tells people what the hell it is. Yeah. There's a little thing that's bothered me about psychology that's kind of a big thing is just like the these naming conventions. Yeah, and they're, and they're uh, again, they're based on on the way that neurotypical people perceive these issues and not what it really is. So the word autistic, and now Asperger's would be considered autistic. Um, uh, autistic means within oneself, within one's world. And it was, you know, this guy, Leo Canner, who was seeing these kids and didn't know how to connect with them and said, oh, they're all in their own world. They don't respond to social stimuli, they don't respond to this. They're stuck in their own worlds, they're autistic. And well, it turns out is actually autistic people respond to everything in the world. They just don't prioritize social uh, stimuli. They are responding to the slight changes in the wind that's happening and they're hearing it on their ear and moving their head back and forth and they find that fascinating, or they see that the way that the leaves are moving gently in the breeze and reflecting the light differently, and their mind picks that up as something playful, and they get stuck on it. And that's why Isaac Newton decided to, to figure out optics. He was this autistic kid who has been hours looking at the at the you know light reflecting through water and through the leaves and just became fascinated with it um, and he needed a language to describe what he was feeling and so he came up with calculus and nowadays it would be oh that autistic kid is a is you know not responding right is in their own world and we have to make them respond to the social stuff mm -hmm. and so you know the, the autism that name is based on a neurotypical assumption so is adhd they see that we uh, don't pay attention to the things that they want us to. And so they say we have an attention deficit. No, we're just paying attention to everything else. <laughs> we're paying attention to the things that naturally interest us that we want to deep dive into and get to know. And uh, we're little scientists who want to experiment with everything. And, you know, sometimes that means that paint gets on the walls. Sorry if that annoys you, you know, <laughs> paint the walls, you know, or, you know, paint the walls, you know, and pay for it. Don't blame me <laughs> for you leaving the paint out. <laughs> oh, and I'm, I know, I realize I'm leaving out. I didn't, um, with, with the, the story I, I've told of kind of how I, I weaned off medication, it wasn't just uh, getting, having regular access to cannabis. 
um, that happened, you know, that, that was just one thing where I noticed like, oh, my brain, I like the way it lights up, uh, when I was, when I'm high versus, and you know what you're saying about like some people, like, oh, they take it and they get paranoid or this or that. Like, uh, my, my first wife, she would fall asleep every time she smoked pot and she'd get mad at me because I like to smoke it more often than her. And I'd be like, well, because she's like, I always fall asleep. I'm like, well, then don't smoke it because I'll smoke right. pot and I'll go compose music and, and make art or, you know, write or do all this stuff. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't just the cannabis. And uh, it was Tom Hartman's book, uh, ADHD, A Different Perspective, where the whole premise of the book is, is basically speaking to ADHD or saying, you need to recognize what you are and that you're living in this world. Do you want to talk a bit of, I know you're a fan of his work. Do you want to uh, talk a bit about that and how, um, how that landed on you when you discovered that? Yeah. So, so I've not read any of the books, but I'm familiar with the, the basic gist and the idea of what he, he says. And, and his kind of idea was this uh, where natural hunter-gatherers in an agricultural society. Right? Yeah, a, a, hunter, a hunter in a farmer's world. And I, I'll never forget, right. it was very vivid the way he described it. It's like, well, you know, he took all these traits that, that fall into, like, this is what makes an ADHD person and just said, well, let's say you were the hunter in your tribe 10,000 years ago. All of those things, like, you know, you're an attraction to, you know, novelty and impulsivity and constantly scanning your environment. It's all very useful stuff if you're a hunter and you would be absolutely miserable if they were like, no, you need to go <laughs> sow the seeds and do the routine work right. of a farmer. And right. so and but it's, you know, agriculture is one of the cornerstones of, of civilization, it seems. And so we are hunters living in a farmer's world. Yep. Yep. That's, and, and there was actually a study that they did to kind of look at that where, you know, there, there's the key difference between an uh, ADHD and a non-ADHD brain seems to have to do with how uh, dopamine is transmitted. It's not that we ha lack it. It's that it, it's just transmitted differently um, in our brains. And there are genes that modulate that, and and uh, you know it's it's pretty consistently found that these these dopamine genes are responsible for for ADHD, and they they isolate or they they looked at two uh, Kenyan tribes that had recently diverged, like in the last ten years, and one was still uh, migratory, and the other one had settled down and become agricultural. And they looked at those with the ADHD genes, and indeed they found in the hunter-gatherer tribe, uh, the ADHDs were at the top of the social ladder, were the healthiest, and in the agricultural society, the opposite, they were at the bottom. And so there, there is a really wonderful study to prove that. And, and I think it's intuitively feels right. Um, these genes appeared in, we share them with great apes, um, so the, these genes appeared for a reason and they appeared, you know, several hundred thousand years ago and are shared by other primates, um, specifically grade eight primates. Um, and they developed for a reason because they were useful and they continued in the genome because they are useful. But when, you know, it, 
the majority does not have that way of thinking and designs the world around an agricultural society because that's the way they learn and they feel safe and feel comfortable. Um, it, it discriminates and alienates people who think differently and experience differently. Well, Joel, this has been, um, again, very therapeutic for me. <laughs> so I want to thank you for that again. And I wanted to ask, um, this is something I was curious about. If, you know, I'm, I am looking to find a therapist uh, or anyone, um, what's the best way to go about finding it? Because that was one thing I've noticed when, like, you know, and it's just part of, you know, the difficulty of navigating the the healthcare industry in general in this country is like well who's who's on my insurance and this or that but yeah. you know with with something like this I you know finding a therapist who shares our our perspective on this and doesn't knee jerk say that medication is the solution and are you finding too that that's um, that is that the baseline for a lot of, of psychiatrists and psychologists in this, mm -hmm. or are you an outlier? And I'm definitely would, an outlier. What's, what's the best way to vet, like searching out a good ADD, ADHD therapist that's in line with what we've been talking about? So I, I'm definitely an outlier because our education is so thoroughly encapsulated in this pathology model. And the neurodiversity paradigm is starting to take hold and you're going to find isolated pockets of it around the country. Um, but likely, if you're going through, you know, your insurance and going down the list of therapists who are going to take insurance, you know, these are folks who, who not to knock people who do this, but for the most part, they're doing 40 hours, you know, of client work a week because insurance companies pay so little that you, you know, you basically need to take on an astronomical amount of work in order to survive. Um, and they're probably not spending a lot of time on challenging their assumptions and, and really deep diving into the inherent problems with the way that therapists are trained. Um, and, you know, the other option is you don't use insurance, but we're expensive because we can only see, you know, five to six clients a day without burning out ourselves. And we have massive student loans and the banks are making a ton off of, you know, rents and mortgages and, and, you know, to survive, we have to charge more than most people can afford, or we have to burn ourselves out with, you know, the 40 hours a week of insurance clients. And we can go on and on about this. This is another reason why we need uh, socialized medicine and right away because it's deal it's creating a mental health crisis in our country um, and and all all the stuff about you know the the societal divides and the paranoia of the right wing um, and the the completely other reality a lot of that can be traced back to trauma um, and mental health issues but they they are not put in the forefront of importance in our country um, and they're not treated as important you know we're gonna we're going to make the insurance companies a ton of money and pay the people who could help save us from destroying ourselves, you know, the same rate in dollars that they were paid in the 1970s. Yeah. It's not good. It's not good for the doctors or the patients. It's, it's good right. for, 
very greedy people at the top who have whatever it is that makes <laughs> makes their brains broken in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, but you know, to, to more specifically answer the question, you can do a Google search for neurodiversity therapists in your area. Just somebody who's even aware of neurodiversity is going to be somebody who's starting to do that work. Um, the other thing that you can do is, is and it sucks that, that a lot of us have to do this, is we have to educate our therapists about what neurodiversity is and the advocacy work that we have done. And sometimes there'll be a learning curve and sometimes they'll be willing to listen. If you can find one who's willing to listen and actually challenge or work with you where you are, that's probably a pretty good therapist. But you're probably going to have to do a little bit of educating uh, with them and giving them, you know, some blogs to, to read and, and books and things like that and see if they step up to the occasion and do it. Well, doctors love that when you tell them I've done some research. Mm -hmm. They should. <laughs> They should. They often don't. Yeah. Because it's getting a doctorate and getting a MD is an inherently traumatic process. And the grandiose grandiosity that builds around that to make that trauma okay is uh, is a big part of why the professions suck also. <laughs> well, Joel, you don't suck. And I want to thank you thank so you. much for uh, talking to me about this. And I think we should we should probably have like another chat sometime too. I think there's a lot of different topics we could go off on, but um, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate your time and all of your insights and all the work that you do. I'll be linking to some of the really excellent articles you've posted on LinkedIn uh, in the description. And is there any uh, any other pluggable you got before we uh, we close things out? Uh, the the practice is called Total Spectrum Counseling. Um, and we're at totalspectrumcounseling.com. That's probably it. <laughs> oh, I should also say, yeah, I should also plug that I also have a, a company called Schwartz Neurodiversity Services, which does consulting, coaching, um, organizing, and advocacy around neurodiversity issues. So if a company wants to start um, incorporating neurodiversity in the way they do things at the school system, uh, need some help if there's somebody who's doing a therapy and has a website that has a lot of really pathologizing ableist language and they're trying to shift their mindset um, i can consult with them and, and help them be more affirming of the neurodivergent experience well excellent man thanks so much and uh looking forward to talking to you again soon likewise thanks brian so yeah I sky, the red and purple, the red and purple.